again I remember there was a probably when I was in high school and when I first expressed uh, my desire to become a pastor I remember Dave King took me out to lunch and one of the many Dave King isms he taught he told me he said Dave some weeks when you're a pastor you are not gonna have the time and then you're gonna step on the stage and you're just gonna open it up and it's gonna be there and I think this is one of those weeks I, I did not have the time that in my perfectionism that I would want to spend on this. I, I really struggled to put this together. So this is going to have to be a Holy Spirit thing to an extra degree. But uh, this series is going to take us a few weeks to go through this. This is just the introduction. So we aren't actually going to get to one of these specific lies that we're going to address. We're just going to kind of open up the idea. So I've entitled today's message, Jailbreak. And I think it goes you know, without saying that the past couple of years we've had here have been pretty frustrating, just as human beings living. With all that's gone on, uh, there's been a lot of drama and there's been a lot of tension. I think it's the elephant in the room. Sometimes we like to just, hey, we aren't gonna talk about that. We're just gonna kind of ignore it. Or it is the lion in the room tearing everything to shreds and we just want it to stop. But there's been a lot of tension. There's been a lot of drama. Sometimes it feels like we're just stepping on eggshells around people. And so we're going to get into that. Because I don't believe, when we look through the pages of Scripture, that's the way that the church is supposed to be. And yet churches have been one of the places that are full of the most disagreement and conflict uh, during the past two years. Now, there's a... I never wanted to be that pastor that uses cheesy movie references, but I'm going to. There's this movie called The Matrix. If you're younger than me, you probably have no clue what that movie is. And if you're way older than me, you probably have no clue what this movie is. But there's this movie called The Matrix. I'm going to do my best to barely explain the plot. But basically, in this fantasy sci-fi world, the robots won, okay? The robots won, and all human beings are just living in these, well, the most human beings are living in these weird bats of fluid, and the robots use them for energy. Super weird. I don't know who thought of this, okay? But this is the basis of the movie. And all these human beings floating in these big bats of goo, they're plugged into this simulation that makes them think they're in the real world. That makes them think it's the early 2000s, and they're just walking around, going to work, getting married, yada, yada, yada. But they're actually deceived. They're in these big tubes. But there are a few humans that are trying to overthrow the robots. And so the main character is approached by these people in the simulation, and one of them offers him one of two pills. One of these pills, if he eats it, he'll forget anything happened, keep living his life in the simulation. And the other pill, he's going to be ripped out of the simulation and begin to fight. And obviously, that's what happens because there's a movie about it. And it's kind of a ridiculous movie, and it, I don't think it's aged as well as we'd like to think it has. But there is a good point in this movie, and that is, if we are deceived, we often don't know we're deceived. And I know that sounds just brain-dead stupid, right? If we're lied to, we don't know the truth. If we're deceived, we don't know we're deceived. But often we have this mindset that we kind of know how everything works in the world. That our perception of what's going on is accurate. But if we have believed lies, if we have been deceived, 
then we don't know we're deceived. We need someone to rescue us. That's where truth comes in. That's especially where God's word comes in. That we as human beings in a fallen world, as fallible human beings, we believe lies. Therefore, we need to be rescued with truth. We believe lies. Therefore, we need to be rescued with truth. And so I think there are two examples. I'm just going to mention them. And then we're going to kind of get into a text that kind of shows this later on. But there are two main temptations in Scripture. The first one we find in Genesis chapter 3, that's the temptation of Eve, right? In the beginning, God created everything good. The world wasn't fallen and broken the way that it is now. And they were the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, and they lived in a, a wonderful relationship with God. And they had this special garden that they were to cultivate. And they walked with God in the cool of the day. And God had given them instruction. He says, there's a certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it you'll surely die. And Satan, he snuck into that garden and he approaches Eve. And he presents to Eve a view of reality that is different than what God had presented to Adam and Eve. He kind of twists the details. He says, well, you're not like really gonna die. God's holding back on you. See, see, God knows that when you eat of this, your eyes are gonna be opened and you'll become like God knowing good and evil. See, Satan takes the existing data and he twists it, plays into Eve's desires, and what does she do? She takes the fruit. She saw that it could make her wise. She saw that it was desirable. She took the fruit. She ate it. Adam went along with her. And here we are today in a broken, fallen world full of sinners where we are hurt and we hurt others and we rebel against our creator. Eve was driven by her desire, and she took Satan's argument at face value. And the beautiful thing that we see in the very beginning of the Gospels, you could see this in Matthew chapter 4, but that's just one of the accounts of it, is Jesus when he was tempted by Satan. Because the first man, Adam, he messed up. He rebelled. He's responsible for this in the end. And yet the second Adam, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he is fully able to resist the temptation of the evil one. Adam and Eve, they were in a garden with all sorts of good stuff around them. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And in that place of weakness, he has a showdown with the devil. And Satan is trying to play into desire. First, just the basic human need to eat, and then he starts to kind of offer some shortcuts to try to get Jesus off of God's will, to get him away from the track of salvation, the path that leads to the cross. And every time Satan twists Scripture, he takes truth and he offers it in a way that is actually deceptive. And every time, and if you've grown up in church, you've heard this, Jesus responds with three words, it is written. His response to the lie is to lay aside desire and need and to counteract that lie with truth. Jesus is able to fully resist that temptation. He is the exact opposite of the first man and woman. He's able to fully resist temptation. Now, the New Testament writers 
much of what they write about is aligning our thoughts, aligning our mindset with what's really going on in the spiritual world. You can look throughout the New Testament, and these writers in the epistles, very often, and I challenge you to go actually test this out, when one of these writers tells his audience, hey, stop doing this, stop it. They don't just say, stop it, and then move on. They give a reason. And that reason is very often teaching on what's really going on in heaven, teaching on what the kingdom of God really looks like, teaching on the work that Christ Jesus has done. We're you know, currently in the middle of the book of Ephesians, and we're going to see this place in Ephesians where after all of this rich material on what God has done for his people is laid out, there's a hinge that says, therefore, this is how we live. This is the way the New Testament directs us. Aligning our thoughts with what's really going on spiritually. That is the strategy that the New Testament authors very often turn to when it comes to changing our behavior. So here's an example for us in Romans. In Romans chapter 12, the first two verses say this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the Apostle Paul takes this Old Testament idea, right? We learned a ton about this back when we were in Leviticus, of a sacrifice, this perfect animal that's offered to God on the altar in worship. And he takes this idea and he applies it to how the Christian lives. That we are to be that pleasing sacrifice to God. Okay, kind of hard to do. But we have the idea. But then we have verse 2 right after it. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The way that we become these pleasing sacrifices requires a mind shift. It requires that our thoughts be changed. We have a fallen mind that is stuck in a bazillion different ruts that are all heading in the wrong direction. And we need God to step into our lives to give us truth and change the way we think. And that changes the way we behave. It's not through just our own effort. We need to be rescued from deception. We need to be rescued from the mindset of the flesh. We need to be transformed that we would know what God wants us to do. So that's what Romans says. The truth affects our inner man, and then it changes the outer man. That's why we have a Bible. That's why we have a book. Truth matters. Now, this is going to seem like a rabbit trail, and, and maybe it honestly is, but I, I would really, this is why I struggle with topical Series. I think they're important to step in and address a topic once in a while. But I really, my wheelhouse is getting into a text and saying, this is what this text says. So we're going to do that right now on the topic of anxiety in Matthew chapter 6. Now it's interesting that as human beings, at least I notice this in my own life, often we'll hear a teaching and then we will misunderstand it. Right? Or someone might, even just in your normal life, someone might give you an instruction and you misunderstand what they said. And you say, hey, yeah, no, you told me to do this. They said, I didn't tell you to do that. You misheard what I said. 
I think the longer you've been in church, the more things that you have misunderstood when they were properly taught to you, and you just kept running with it. Because I think for the majority of my Christian life, on the topic of anxiety, I thought, well, the Bible says that anxiety is wrong, therefore we should just stop doing it. I mean, that was kind of the extent of what I believed on the topic of anxiety. In fact, I even had people say, well, anxiety is a sin. All right, and I do believe there's some instances where anxiety is very much connected to sin, but it's just, hey, it's wrong, stop doing it. Yeah, that really helps. Now I just feel more guilty. And here's the crazy thing is when we get into Scripture, we actually have a different perspective. Now, I never thought I was a super anxious person, and then I became an adult. Because it turns out when you're a teenager, you don't have a lot to worry about. I mean, you do, but you don't have a lot to worry about. The adults in the room know. Okay, you think it's bad, it's going to get worse. It's also going to get better, okay? But uh, there's a lot more to deal with, okay? Uh, The social dynamics in high school are nothing compared to being a pastor. You heard that amen back there from Steve, okay? So I had to start working through my anxiety, and so I actually, you know, turned to some expert help, and and Caleb and I have been kind of working through that together, and there's some great nuggets of wisdom, and there were some Christian men that were studying this and sharing it in a way that I believe is God-honoring, and what these experts say is that anxiety is very much linked to our needs, that we think we need something, and when we don't get it, we have this, this, like, life-or-death feeling in our bodies, Now, if someone is trying to kill you in an alleyway, it's good to have that, like, flight-or-fight, life-threatening feeling in your body. Why? Because your life is actually in danger. But if I feel that way before going to a party, that's kind of debilitating, isn't it? Because that's not a life-or-death situation, right? That that worry and that anxiety is causing your body to have a response that is getting in the way of you functioning as a human being. That's pretty awful. And I know a lot of you experience that. I experience it. And chances are, if you're younger in this room, statistically, more and more of us are experiencing this. And I could go down a whole rabbit trail of of the stuff I've learned about how these needs and how you can even have, like, false needs, things that you think you need that you really don't need. And you're never going to be able to even get those things anyways. And so when you don't get them, you get anxious. Anyway, it's really messed up. Here's the cool thing, though, because we're in church. Jesus beat these experts by 2,000 years. He did. Jesus beat them to the punch, okay? I still recommend those sources, but in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, in the way that Matthew lines up Jesus' teaching, he he puts this section uh, in amongst some teaching on material possessions. And so I think it's very important to think about it in that framework. I'd encourage you to go back and read the context of chapter 6. And Jesus says in verse 25, after just saying you cannot serve God in money, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Here's where it gets super profound. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Now, Jesus is talking about normal life needs. Like, we know that we need food and shelter and clothing. These are basic human needs for survival. And yet, Jesus ties these to our worry, these to our anxiousness, 
And he says, look, there's more to life than survival. There's more to life than our basic needs. And yet often when we find ourselves in that place of worry because there's that certain bill that's sitting on the table or there's that certain email that's sitting in our inbox or there's that certain financial situation that we are going through, it is just debilitating. You get that horrible feeling in your body. And yet Jesus says, look, there's a bigger picture. Life is more than just the things we use to survive. What is Jesus doing? He's pointing us to a higher spiritual reality. He's pointing to us to what's really going on, the big picture. It's more than just the physical things we see around us. And he goes on to give uh, two examples. He talks about how birds, you never see a bird have a garden, okay? You don't see a bird shopping in Hannaford. You might see one in Hannaford, but you don't see him shopping in Hannaford. And yet the birds are fed. God takes care of them. He talks about the flowers, the foliage you see out in the field, that flowers are dressed way better than the best designer clothing that the richest person in human existence could ever own, and yet they sprout up and then they're gone. And if God clothes flowers and even weeds that way, and God takes care of the birds that way, how much more is God going to take care of us? We're made in his image. And so, moving on down to the end of the, chap the chapter, starting in verse 32, he says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, referring to what shall we eat, what shall we drink. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He says, look, unbelievers, they're obsessed with these things because that's all they got. But for us, we are to seek first the kingdom of God. Once again, he's pointing us to a higher spiritual reality. That we are to, with our lives, seek to honor God, to serve him and love him, live in relationship with him. And while we're pursuing that, of course he's going to take care of us. Yet we believe lies that we are the only one on the line. That if I don't make this work, nothing's going to happen. If I don't find a way to fix this, then it's all over. We think in these extreme terms. Or we look to the future, and even though what's coming towards us, those needs, the things that we know we need are coming towards us, they are coming for us, we go, well, what if they don't? Right? And we die a thousand deaths thinking about all the awful things that could happen for us tomorrow and the day after and the day after that and the day after that. We have a really messed up view of our needs. And Jesus' correction for it isn't just to yell at us, to, hey, stop it, because that's bad. We say, look, life is more than these things. Look at the big picture. And when we see the big picture, we see a loving creator who cares about us more than anyone on this planet has ever cared about us. And if we're pursuing him and living for him, yeah, he's going to take care of us. He's going to make it work. And the crazy thing is, if you look in church history, you look at the men and women in the Bible, 
the more devoted someone is to their creator, the more they trust him, the less they care about their needs. I find that really convicting because I tend to care a lot about my needs. But if I truly believe that there's a God who is going to take care of me, then I can just go full send for the kingdom and I don't have to worry about these other things. Yeah, I have responsibilities. Yeah, I need to live. I'm not going to be lazy. I'm not going to violate another dozen passages of Scripture because God's going to take care of me. But this points out that we're deceived, that our view of our needs is incorrect, and we think that our needs are far more important than we think they are, and we think that we are the only ones who can provide for ourselves. Jesus is saying that's not true. And we have to take that in um, a holistic view of everything that Scripture teaches. Are we to work? Yeah, we aren't going to become a bunch of hippies and say, hey, God's going to take care of us. We're just going to drive around in vans, and that's going to be our life. No, okay, we have to work. We aren't supposed to worry about it because we serve a sovereign God who cares for us. It's a perspective shift from the lie that I sustain myself to the truth that God is the one who sustains me. If we're anxious about our needs, we are deceived. And the more you go down the rabbit hole, you will be amazed at the lies that you believe, even if you don't think you believe them. Because how many people have heard this passage? Everyone in this room, right? Yes? Unless you had earplugs in. We've all heard this passage and uh, the majority of you have heard this passage before. Question, have you ever been anxious after hearing this Bible passage? Yes, that's interesting. Because we've heard the truth, but we still need that truth to penetrate all the layers of unbelief and distrust and lies that are in, this, in our heads and in our hearts. It's a process. We believe, we believe lies, therefore we need to be rescued with truth. It's a process. And this is the process we're going to be pursuing over the next couple of weeks, is looking at a major lie and then responding to it with God's word. Responding to it with God's word. It's kind of the opposite of what we normally do on a Sunday. Normally we say, hey, this is what God's word says. Also, we believe some junk that's not true. We're just going to flip it. And hopefully that will bring some healing and some unity here in this church. I have an awful illustration. I, I really should have a trigger warning for this one. It's about warts. Okay, so if you want to run out right now, you can. Okay, you've been warned. So warts, I had a ton of them when I was a teenager. Like I had a whole hand, parents can testify, whole hand just covered in those nasty things. We tried everything. We tried those little special patches you put on them. We tried duct tape, okay? I got desperate as a kid. This is real gross. I'll give you a chance. Cover your ears if you're grossed out by stuff. I used to try to cut them off with safety scissors in middle school, okay? Never worked. They always grew back. Always grew back. Because turns out a wart is actually from a virus. That there's a virus that gets into your skin and it triggers a response in your body that then your cells, uh, they, they duplicate very rapidly in your skin, and that's what creates that little unsightly bump. And so the only solution that worked was to go to a 
dermatologist and have all of them frozen. And it hurt because they can't just freeze the wart. They have to freeze everything around it and all the way down to that very bottom where that virus first got in. Then your body goes to repair the damage and it realizes, hey, there's a virus. We need to, we need to make things right. Ever since then, my body was able to deal with those warts, and I haven't had to deal with those in probably a decade. But it was gross. But the freezing, it had to get to that very core. It had to get to the problem. The wart was just what was presenting itself. But that wart pointed to a deeper, maybe even grosser issue. It needed to be frozen, not, the wart, not just have the wart treated from the outside. And I think it's the same way with us. Fallen human beings in a world full of deception where there is a deceiver, Satan, that is still deceiving people. And we as human beings don't always have the full picture and we tell people stuff that isn't true. We also lie to other people to cover our mistakes and our sins. We live in a deceived world. And these lies cause huge warts in our life. They cause huge warts in families. They cause huge warts in church. And if we're just trying to attack the wart, we're going to get super frustrated because there's something causing it. There's something causing it. Like I said, this has been a frustrating couple of years, I think, for everyone. Like, no matter where your political alignments are, no, no matter where your opinion is on anything that's happened over the past two years in America, it's been frustrating. And other people have been frustrating. And there's been great disagreement. There's been passionate opinion. There's been extreme anger where people have just left. They've blocked family members. They've left churches without even having a discussion. There's extreme fear where some people, even no matter what the experts say, they are just afraid and paralyzed to go anywhere. And there's a lot of junk going on. I think when we get to the bottom of it, the reason this pandemic has been so nasty socially is not because we're different people. It's not because we actually have different opinions. Because we've always been that way. Okay, we aren't robots. We aren't clones. I don't think there's been a single day where everyone in this room agreed, probably on even like what your favorite type of like Italian food is. Okay, we have disagreements. That's never been an issue before. I believe it's been so nasty socially because we're deceived people, not just because we're different people. You notice how that completely changes the game? Because now our goal is not to get so-and-so to agree with me. So-and-so, hey, it needs to, you know, you need to stop this, reading this news source and switch to my news source. No, no, no. That doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. We've been deceived. We've believed lies that Satan's using to cause damage, and we need to target the lie, and the warts will shrink, and they'll find their place. I believe these issues are because we're deceived people, not just because we're different. So in a world where Satan deceives, we deceive ourselves, others deceive us, we must be willing to contemplate that maybe the way we see things isn't accurate. And man, that hurts. Because I love to think that I'm right. <laughs> I love to think that the way I see the world, the way I understand the world is right. 
And this is why we have God's word. We have this anchor to continually bring us back and say, hey, you don't see things exactly the way you think you do. One day we will. One day we'll see clearly. But in the meantime, there's a process of using God's word and applying it to the lies that we have believed and finding healing from that. If we have conflict in church, a big factor are the lies keeping us from experiencing the unity that already exists. We're going to talk about that in one of our sessions. And so what this series has come out of is really just finding myself in a place of frustration as a person and as a pastor, and then praying my guts out over it, and then observing what was going on, and finding some answers and some good observations, and then bringing those together as an elder and pastor team and discussing it, And then the idea came about, well, maybe you should do a sermon series about it. So here we are. So this is uncharted territory. We'll figure it out as we go along. Please be praying for me. And please be praying for each other. That we'd be led by truth. We believe lies, therefore we need to be rescued with truth. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. And and we're going to transition to communion today. I'm not going to make you open it upside down this time like I did last time. Last time we did communion and I had you guys open it inversely. A bunch of people spilled it on themselves. I'm sorry about that. I wasn't thinking. (laughs) Didn't spill on my part though. So So 1 Corinthians 11. I, I forgot it was communion today. And I was sitting there in my seat. Okay. I've got to add that to my notes. And and it's amazing, I was just, uh, we did a visitation the other day, and I got to celebrate communion with an elderly lady, and so we opened this passage and we just read it. And, and it's, it's funny, we, we do this so often that we often forget why Paul is explaining how to do communion, how to celebrate the Lord's Supper to the Corinthian church. Because we're just so used to doing it, we forget why he was telling them, hey, this is how you do it. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 through 22. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And that's when the words, especially for those of you that have been in this church for a while, where we used the same words every single week, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That's when it comes in. You see, for them, they celebrated communion not with little, just little crackers like this, but they actually had a meal. 
And people were coming in and bringing in their own food and gorging themselves while their poor brothers and sisters in Christ weren't having enough to eat. Some people were being drunk. And at the end of the day, it wasn't celebrating the unity that this church had in Christ. It became a very individual and divisive thing. And so what does Paul do? He points them to the spiritual reality of what Christ has done. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he, when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. So this represents Christ's body that was broken for us, that we remember his death in this. And so let's do this in remembrance of Jesus. says in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood now you know that's a word we don't use a lot here in 21st century Hollis Maine but and a covenant a covenant is kind of this weird mix between a contract and a relationship It's an agreement with blessings and curses where two people or two parties come together and they have an agreement and that in this agreement they will live in a certain type of relationship and there'll be blessings and there'll be good things that come from that and if it is broken, there are curses. Marriage is probably the closest thing in our society that we could point to as a covenant. That there are blessings in marriage and if that bond is broken, there are curses. There are bad things that come from that. And in the Old Testament, we see that God's people, Israel, were in a covenant with God. And it went back to Abraham, where they set up the whole ceremony for the covenant, and God put Abraham to sleep. And God completed the ceremony by himself, saying, hey, I'm the one upholding this. This is on me, not on you. Now, God also made other covenants with his people over the years, but that one covenant of promise and of faith has stood steady. And we today stand in a new covenant where those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven of our sins and we are adopted as sons and daughters. And so we are one in Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are his covenant people. And that is a covenant that cannot be broken. All right, it was accomplished on the cross, proven in the resurrection. Okay, there's nothing we can do to break that covenant apart. And this is the covenant that we celebrate, a covenant secured by the precious blood of our Creator. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness that you are undoing the work of the fall, that you, the second Adam, 
have defeated death in the grave. You've had victory over Satan. You have brought your people together. And so I pray that you would allow us to live in a way that is in line with the reality that already exists, that we are one people in you. Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Mainer and foreigner, we are all brought together. Those who believe, we are all brought together as your people. Help us to live in that truth. I pray this week that you would lead us in truth. That you would vanquish and break the lies of the enemy. You would sanctify us. In the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you.